Welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. And as you all know, I am all about promoting other history projects because I'm all about getting good history storytelling out to you, the listeners. So let me just plug Mark Vinette, who is out there giving us all an exciting new look at history in the North Americas. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. Well, back to our show. This is our grand finale, guys. The last episode of 2020. The last episode of season one. Guys, I really want to thank you for helping this dream come to life. The podcast has grown faster than I could ever have imagined. In one year, I was able to start a podcast and a linked YouTube channel, Instagram, and Facebook. I've partnered up with some really cool brands, and I've got to meet and interview some amazing experts. And most importantly, I've been having a great time commiserating with so many fellow Civil War buffs. There is so much more planned for Season 2, and I can't wait to share even more untold Civil War stories with you in the coming year. And now, the untold Civil War goes to the movies. This is the first of hopefully many Civil War movie reviews that I will be doing, and to kick it off, I had to choose a John Wayne classic. Horse Soldiers is a fictional account based on the real Grierson's Raid. With me to review the movie is Michael Connors, Vice President of the New York Civil War Roundtable. And this is a real treat because he has family ties to the actual raid. So light up that cigar, open up those recent dispatches, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. All right, welcome back to the Untold Civil War podcast. And today with me, I have Michael Connors, Vice President of the Civil War Roundtable in New York City and good friend of the show who's uh, had me on his uh, radio show and also at the Civil War Roundtable. It's been a real honor to have you here and to discuss this great topic. Thank you for coming. Absolutely. And first off, let me extend our sincere thanks from the Civil War Roundtable of New York and from the Ask the Lawyer show for your joining us and enlightening us as to your mission, getting people educated through modern media, you know, digital and otherwise, uh, in the 21st century about Civil War history, because it's it's something we could use a lot more people doing, but you're doing it quite well. I, I really appreciate the kind words, and uh, I can't wait to dig into this topic, especially since we're both John Wayne fans, and you actually have a family connection to this entire story. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So just for our listeners, today we're actually doing the first of hopefully many 
Civil War movie reviews. And today's topic is going to be none other than the 1959 John Ford's Horse Soldiers with uh, John Wayne and William Holden. And to tell you the truth, I can't think of any other director who ever portrayed men on horseback in a better way. And no one who sits better on a horse than uh, John Wayne himself. So this is actually based on a true Civil War raid, correct? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Can you get into that? Certainly. Um, well, when Grant was trying to take Mississippi, he fa- you know, of course it was very fortified because it was the dividing line between the Western Confederate States and the Eastern Confederate States. Taking Vicksburg was vital to holding control of the Mississippi. Control of the Mississippi meant for the Union dividing the South in two. Uh, many historians would make the case that when Vicksburg fell, that was the death knell for the Confederacy. And part of Grant's grand strategy, and I personally am of the school that says that Grant was the greatest strategist of the Civil War and maybe the greatest military strategist American history has been privileged to offer. He certainly, I mean, in General Petraeus's words, Grant was one of the only people in military history to master the strategic, operational, and tactical level of warfare. Uh, Grierson's raid, as part of his grand strategy, is an excellent example of that. Grierson's raid was a diversionary supply line cut-and-burn mission headed up by Colonel Benjamin Grierson. Um, It was actually the brainchild of a general under Grant's command, Charles Hamilton, who it turns out was a bit of a glory seeker and caused problems with everyone's command from McClellan at the beginning to Grant later on. And when he finally resigned uh, because he wasn't apparently getting enough adulation, Grant happily accepted it and sent an entire series of documents explaining why it was the right decision to the Pentagon. But the man had one very good idea, which is he came up with the idea for Grierson's raid, apparently at least. that it, It's dubious as to where you know how much of the process he actually influenced but in any event he supposedly was the first one who mentioned it and grant did send a cavalry mission later on under colonel grierson to cut confederate supply lines sabotage railroads and just generally cause havoc to the south and the west of vicksburg in order to have the confederate armies in that region scrambling to try to catch grierson instead of fortifying the real prize which was vicksburg itself and of course you do have a family connection to this raid. Well, okay, so this is, this is one of those things, and I mean, untold Civil War, this is a great thing to talk about. When it comes to people breaking the war into North versus South, it really, the lines were not that clean. Um, if you go back, it looks like the numbers tally up now. There were about 100,000 white men who fought for the Union who were Southerners. So this wasn't North versus South as much as, what, as it was Unionist versus Separatist. And the, the Unionist Southern impulse was very strong, and a lot of the members of my family fell into that camp. Um, I don't think we have record of any members of my family voting for secession. We did have some that fought for the Confederacy, but I don't think anyone actually voted for secession. But the Union impulse was strong enough in some of them that some of them actually defected and helped out the Union. And in Grierson's raid in particular, he was aided by people who were called butternut guerrillas. The Butternut Guerrillas were a group of Southerners who were loyal to the Union cause. Some historians, like Timothy B. Smith, who wrote the book The Real Horse Soldiers about Grierson's raid, 
number them at 12, I believe, in his estimate. Ed Bars, who recently passed away but was one of the great battlefield historians, numbered them at around 20. So it's, you know, it's disputed. But it was a small number of Southerners who acted as scouts for the Union, but not just as scouts for the Union. They also acted in, a, in diversionary ways that really would have had them marked as spies had they been caught by the Confederacy, and they would have been hanged. So they were putting a lot on the line. Um, and two of my relatives, these are uncles of my great-great-great-uncles, were part of the Butternut Guerrillas. They actually received discharge papers from the 7th Illinois Cavalry, which was one of the two units that was sent with one of the two regiments sent with Grierson's brigade. Um, their names were William and Stephen McKithen. And so when you watch the movie The Horse Soldiers and you see the plainclothes scouts that are coming in, played by Ken Curtis and the other one will come back to me in a moment, but when you see those plainclothes Confederate soldiers, uh, Southerners rather, not Confederates, who basically guide Grierson's troops around in the South, that's based on history. That's a, that's a detail in the movie that is very important and historically based. They also, in terms of their diversionary tactics, they would do things, and this is, sometimes they would dress up as ministers or they would be plain clothes and that kind of thing, you know, ministers, deacons, and they would run their cover that way. But they also, on occasion, wore Confederate uniforms and gave misleading information about which way the Union forces were headed. And who knows how many times that kept Grierson and his troops out of harm's way on the raid. Right, and they definitely needed these scouts to be shielding their movements and allowing them to operate behind enemy lines, which would ultimately lead to the raid's success, right? Being one of the most successful raids in the Civil War, if not all U.S. military history. I would say I, w I would absolutely classify it as one of the—I mean, when it comes to sheer daring, number one, this is an entire mission that took place behind enemy lines. And part of, part of the success was based in the fact that Grierson continually did what people didn't expect him to do. Many of the Confederates opposing him expected him to have to flee back across Union line—back to the Union lines by going north. And he did not actually end up going north— um, he went south to Baton Rouge. That was the way, that was where the raid ended, because he went to the Union strongholds in Louisiana. So I think many of his own soldiers were confused when at no point did they turn around and go north. But once again, the fact that he operated outside of the what people might expect is probably what saved him. And what's truly remarkable about the raid is that there were only in this entire time moving through behind enemy lines, only they only suffered three casualties. That is a success rate that is almost unparalleled in terms of operations in military history. So, you know, for sheer daring, there are very few things you can compare it to. I mean, for, for those who like World War II history, maybe Scorzani's rescue of Mussolini from Italian hands, but it's, it's a wild ride, no pun intended there. Oh, absolutely. It definitely takes its place up there among the other great raids of, of our military history, the Bin Laden raid, you name it. But... It gets immortalized in the movie The Horse Soldiers. And I have a real connection to The Horse Soldiers because I am a big John Wayne fan. And I do think, as fun as it is for us historians to bash on historical films, there are some positives with this film, too. Absolutely. Historical-wise as well. One thing that I noticed in some of the earlier scenes is they talk about or they introduce all the officers and one's an actor, one's a politician, and John Wayne is a railroadman. 
And that is very typical, I think, of the Civil War Army, the volunteer army of that day. Yeah. And, you know, for those of us who watch it now, a railroad man doesn't seem that disparate for, you know, to eventually become an officer in wartime. But in actuality, the real Benjamin Grierson wasn't a railroad man. He was a musician. And, you know, of all things, that's not exactly who you expect to turn around and be leading this sort of commando-style mission through the South. And as to the movie being a positive, I mean, first off, it's just, it's one of those movies, it, it's such a good piece of cinema on its own that it probably, I mean, I know my own father, who saw it when he was nine years old in theaters, felt that that was one of the formative experiences that made him interested in Civil War history. So there's that alone, for starters. But then you've also got the fact that John Ford would even think it interesting enough to include the Butternut Gorillas to make a movie about Grierson's Raid, which is one of these underrated tactical masterpieces of the Civil War. You know, it's a tactical masterpiece underpinning a strategic masterpiece, which is the Siege of Vicksburg as a whole. So, you know, there's absolutely merit to be found in the historical aspect of it. And like you were saying, the the common soldiers' army, it, as in even the officers were people from all walks of life. It, this wasn't, you know, the, many of the people who were real heroes in the Civil War were not career military. But there also were soldiers that were career military. Exactly. And we do see that represented in the, the show. Absolutely. When we see uh, William Holden's character uh, meet a fellow Confederate officer who he had served with on the plains fighting Indians, I believe they mentioned. So, and that was a real thing. If you think about the stories of Fort Sumter with uh, Major Anderson and General Beauregard. Yeah. Well, I mean, tragic, uh, tragically, a lot of the stuff that people would characterize as brother against brother, even if it wasn't you know si- literal siblings, but emotionally, for people that had gone to West Point together, for people, the career military people were the ones that had to take up arms against people who they might have considered best friends at certain points, roommates even. And so that that was a that was something that was just very it's almost incomprehensible in a modern context. And then to think that these brothers fighting each other, how brutal the war becomes, especially towards the end of the war, if you think about what was happening with the destruction of war material, which I think is also covered very well in the movie with the Sherman neckties and oh absolutely absolutely you know once again you're talking about details that a lot of movies would have overlooked but the horse soldiers does get into that yes there are inaccuracies but it's also overall and we might get into nitpicking some of this stuff a little bit later but overall it's it really truly is a great movie and it's the kind of thing that can serve as an introduction to certain key elements of the civil war especially for people who may not know i mean if if you've already just taken a nosedive into the history that's one thing but there are a lot of people out there who kind of need to wade into the waters and it's the perfect kind of movie for that well let, let's get into that what do you think about john wayne marlowe or our grierson right. how, how how do you think grierson would have been happy with that portrayal well you know i in in the words of ed bars you know the the late Ed Bars, you've got John Wayne, you know, traipsing around with a woman when there's a raid to be carried out. <laughs> and so uh, he didn't exactly approve of it, but he was there with his fiance, and so apparently he toughed it out. He said he would have walked out of the theater during the scene with the, the young cadets ma- marching off. But, it, I mean, if you want to get into that, first off, to, if you want to talk about the real history of cadets serving during in the Civil War, especially in the South, VMI and the Citadel, Right. Um, I mean, there is that whole scene with uh, John Wayne uh, and his his command having to fight these. I guess they must they must be middle school age cadets. 
um, and, and you know ends up spanking them on the bottom. That I don't think is true. Right. I don't think that was ever true or any incident like that, as far as my knowledge. No. But we do know that VMI cadets and Citadel cadets were involved in some of the fighting. VMI famously at New Market, I believe. Right. And of right. course, the Citadel would fight at uh, the beginning of arguably firing the first shot of the war at the Star of the West. So you do see things like that. But was Grierson involved with that? Not specifically, no. And not no. with middle And uh, certainly middle not middle school and high school kids. <laughs> that they yeah. were going yeah. to uh, early high Early <laughs> high school, no less, yeah. Now, actually, interestingly, one of the differences also is that Grierson did have some cannons with him. So when he's fighting mostly militias along the way, cannons are a pretty good deterrent. You talk about keeping the casualties low. Cannons are a pretty good deterrent against militia forces if you have them and they don't. And for whatever reason, the cannons didn't make the cannons didn't make it into the movie. But it's uh, I mean, if, if anyone here and, and now we're talking about movies that really have nothing to do with history. But um, if anyone has seen Major Dundee, which is just a great film and complete nonsense history, you know how much of an effect even one cannon can have in terms of a battle. Right. Maybe that's another um, <laughs> Civil War themed movie we can do later yeah. on on the show. I, I can defend the history here. I, I can't with Major Dundee, <laughs> but, but it is such a good movie anyway. Uh, well, for sure, I think, and you even see that in the beginning of the movie when he talks about, you know, traveling light and, and right, moving right. light. So uh, it's interesting that uh, John Ford would cut that out so early in the movie. Well, I think he was also trying to preserve the underdog aspect to Grierson, which if he had been caught by any of the major Confederate forces, yes, he would have been the underdog, but ultimately he was able to evade them. And so it doesn't suit the dramatic portrayal to have them bullying militias with a cannon, you know, with, with artillery pieces when they're, when you're trying to make them the underdog. How do you think John Ford, especially with today and what everyone talks about with the lost cause story, uh, the lost cause portrayal of the Civil War mm -hmm. or telling of the Civil War. Do you think that there is some lost cause elements in that movie, or do you think that it is strictly just telling a cavalryman's story? I, I would say it's, you know, it's mostly telling a cavalryman's story. Um, I, I wouldn't say, John Ford didn't really go into lost cause historiography. Even when he has, you know, seemingly noble Confederate figures in his films, there are still flaws, and there are still questions about the general ideology. I mean, it was a complicated time. And I, I don't think there, – there are some people who actively shy away from that in their storytelling. I don't think John Ford is one of them. Maybe the nuance is a little bit deeper than just what you see on the surface, but it is there. Uh, it, a key example of that would be Ethan Edwards in The Searchers, who's one of the best – I mean, you know, who's really a literary figure as much as a – you know, not just a movie character, but a literary figure in his own right. Right. Um, but I, I still think he, he does do – he portrays both sides pretty well, I think. Yeah. I, I don't think you watch that and – and walk away with a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. And and look, if you want a if you want a movie about the injustices of the Confederacy, you go for that. But this is purely a military operational movie. It's it's not different movies set out to do different things. Right. And I think we can appreciate that and maybe in a way it's sort of lost today. Everything seems to be done with uh, some sort of agenda. I it's very hard to find a true military non movie. Yeah, yeah. non-ideological just just true movie on a military campaign. Yeah. Um and so yeah, I think John Ford kind of hits the nail on the head there for just telling a campaign. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. I, don't, I don't know how – I mean, look, maybe Grierson spent that entire campaign wishing there was a woman by his side. So you know what? 
Maybe he would appreciate John Ford sticking right. that in for him. Who knows? There's all sorts of uh, really fun stuff in there. The uh, sergeant major that drinks Absolutely. a lot. That, who, Absolutely. I got this extra stripe because <laughs> I'm the taster. Um, but in, in defense of this female character, there were southern female spies who oh absolutely you know and there were there were spies on both sides but you know there were a lot of females who did take an active role another thing is and this is it's easy looking at the success of Grierson's raid to say oh well you know it was it was pretty clear that it was bound to succeed from the start the confederates just didn't have the resources there to stop him and vicksburg was already predetermined nothing in warfare is predetermined that's that's one of the things you can't take anything for granted there were there were Union raids that had taken place before where you had people... I mean, the Colonel Abel Strait was raid was meant to conduct a raid similar to this, destroying railroads, cutting supply lines, that kind of thing. And he ended up captured and a prisoner of war for 10 months because Nathan Bedford Forrest caught up with him. Now, granted, Colonel Grierson did not have Nathan Bedford Forrest on his tail here, which probably served him well, but... Right, right. That's, uh, but it is, it is this oddity of war where someone can do the exact same thing as someone else at a different time one is successful one isn't it's the roll of the dice it's just the the game of war kind of reminds me if i think back to the arguably the first siege of uh washington city during the civil war the early days when lincoln is still waiting for his seventy-five thousand militiamen to come to his aid and Virginia has just seceded, and it looks like uh, Baltimore is preventing troops from coming through, and thus Maryland is about to secede as well. Secede as well. Members of the Frontier Guard go into Virginia mm-hmm. and capture a Confederate flag. A few weeks later, mm-hmm. Elmer Ellsworth does the same thing and becomes a martyr because he's shot and right. killed. Right. It, it really is a roll of the dice, and yeah. nothing is predetermined. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Now, regarding Colonel Strait, this is an interesting aside as far as women in warfare. Lavina McCarthy Strait and the couple's five-year-old son accompanied the 51st into the South, with Lavina acting as nurse for the regiment. The soldiers dubbed her the mother of the 51st for her contributions. Lavina was captured three times by Confederate soldiers. Twice she was exchanged in return for prisoners of war. The third time, she escaped using a gun she had hidden under her skirts. So that's a story that deserves telling somewhere. Oh, but. absolutely. And uh, <laughs> she sounds like a real tough broad. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's something I just learned today. So there you go. Just doing a little yeah. bit of side research to this. And there's always more to uncover with the Civil War. That's one thing. And, you know, and that's why my podcast keeps growing. You know, there's just way too many stories yeah. uh, to tell in one day. And it's great. But let's, let's go back to the movie. Are there some specific favorite scenes that you would like to talk about from that movie? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, the the charge at Newton Station. Now, Newton Station was quite important because while the battle there wasn't as dramatic as it plays out in the movie, uh, Newton Station was vital as the midpoint between Jackson and Meridian. Cutting off that Confederate supply train was huge as far as the war went. And so, yes, not as dramatic. The movie makes it more dramatic, but it's appropriately dramatic as kind of a climax of the movie because of the fact that Newton was so important to take for the Union as part of Grierson's operation. Although it actually wasn't Newton Station itself that was the primary goal. It was bridges near Newton Station that were the actual primary goal. But nonetheless, that making that the climax definitely falls within the license of within artistic license on John Ford's part. That whole battle scene... Charging out of the cars and... The, yeah. It is 
I think has kind of become iconic. I actually have that model soldier, right? That Absolutely, was made yeah. by Conti. Uh, we do as well. Yep. Yeah, great. Yep. It's it's a real iconic image. The the missing arm yeah. holding the 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 battle flag. Yep. Uh, it really is. But of course, I think also. I mean, if if you you asked me earlier if the, if it enters into lost cause at all, that's a little bit of it. You know the the right. That that's but, kind of what I remembered too. Yeah. But um. But still, I mean, lost cause or not, gl- it's there, a glorious it, cinematic moment. Right. No matter and how were you there instances it. where. A wounded officer probably yeah. picked up a with uncommon rebel flag gallantry and yeah, and, and led, most certainly. And another part about that is you always hear these stories about flag bearers, how it was right. the most uh, dangerous position on the battlefield, and yet everybody considered it this great honor. And it, I mean, that's, exactly, yeah. And you see that in the movie when one flag bearer goes down, mm-hmm. another picks up right. the flag, right? And there are so many stories of. You know, it could have been twelve guys that picked up that flag in, in, one, in battle one battle and right. got hit and and was either wounded, mortally wounded, or killed outright. Well, that's and I mean, this is one thing. You know, comparing any equivalent, for example, European unit um, from the time, you know, from the nineteenth century, it, it's just ludicrous because you have European unit. If they suffer thirty percent casualties, half the time they break. I, I forget what the exact number is, but it's like. Past a certain percentage of casualties, it's like 20 or 30 percent, the units disintegrate and flee. Who, Whatever combination of gallantry, idealism, and what have you just innervated the American populace at that time, and the fighting age populace in particular, Civil War re- units would fight until only 10 percent were left. Right. I mean, to, to the right. last man even. It was just something that was unheard of in warfare of that time because you had most, I mean, in Europe, so much of it was mercenary armies and everything. That was part of it. But in America, it felt like people were really fighting for an ideal. Well, you know, they say, you know, the most bloody fights are between brothers. I've actually heard about, you know, the original idea of the bayonet, mm-hmm. right? The idea of being able to fix bayonets and advance on a position and the idea was, would you necessarily end up dueling with bayonets or poking each other? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, probably not. Mm-hmm. But if you did it with enough discipline, the guy on the other side would do the calculation and say, he might stab me, he might not. But I really don't want several inches of cold steel in my mm-hmm. gut, so I'm going to run. And a lot of the times you see it with the you know British Empire, they're able to push back uh, several adversaries from all around the world just by – the threat of the bayonet. Right. If you look at the American Civil War, the threat yeah. of the bayonet was just the beginning of the fight. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that is definitely different, I think, uh, on the American continent during that time. I mean, that's, you know, it, there's no question that the America, that the soldiers in the American Civil War on both sides were the preeminent fighting force on the, in the globe at that time. Well, what do you think about the aftermath to that scene as well, the aftermath to the fighting. I also think that's a pretty moving scene. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. With John Wayne at the bar, you know, and, and I guess the, um, I forget the character's name now and the actor, but he plays the political general. And he's talking about, you hear that? That's, you know, millions of dollars of equip- railroad equipment being destroyed. And John Wayne says, you know, I used to build these railroads or whatever. And you can see the distress yeah. in his face. And I think part of that was not only the distress of destroying something that he built, but also, you know, the loss of life. You you constantly see him in the scene like, I didn't want this fight. I didn't want to mm. fight, you know. You, you see that. And I think John Wayne actually, for someone who – I always hear it from the John Wayne haters that, you know, John Wayne – John Wayne played John Wayne. 
on right. TV. Um, so there, there are roles where you can accuse him of that. Um, but yeah. when he's got a really good director at his back, that you don't see that. Yeah, and I think that was a scene, you know, where it shows that John Wayne could pull off. Oh, the, absolutely, the depth. the depth, the depth. Yeah, look, just because he's not method acting and you know starving himself or treating members of the set like he's an actual union officer doesn't mean that he's not somewhat putting his head in the role, right? And trying to imagine and. You know, and this is another thing from John Ford's point of view, making Grierson a ra- – well, his Grierson fill-in, uh, Railroad Man. What – and this is something we've sort of forgotten because technology has moved so far since then. But what was the first unifying endeavor that our country took after the Civil War? It was not just rebuilding railroads but building them out. The uh, And, I mean, the, the show Hell on Wheels that was on AMC kind of oh, touches yeah. on this. Yeah. But it's the the first real unifying endeavor we had post Civil War was the railroad. It was stretching from sea to sea. It was reaching out and bridging. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the railroad tracks across the country were stitches across the wounds of the American Civil War. That's a great way to put it. It it was a, a reconstruction project in a way. Sort of. You could also say the same thing for the Spanish American War. You could. <laughs> to yeah. to bring people together against a common enemy, but absolutely, and that's something that railroads play not only a big role in the end of the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, but during the Civil War. I, you look at the railroads being, if you look at the battles, a lot of battles are fought on railroad hubs. Mm-hmm. You know, the first Manassas or first Bull Run. Again, railroads played a, a prominent role in why the battle was fought, and the ultimate outcome of that battle. Uh, Railroads are really the major lifeline uh, of the nation at that time. Right. And, uh, you know, once again, it's just not something we think about because we have cars now, we have planes now, we have all this, you know, technology leapt and leapt and leapt in the 20th century. And we forget that the railroad was earth-changing at this time. I mean, you know, the, the dramatic impetus of that really can't be overstated. And look at some of John Ford's early work. He was obsessed with trains because trains had been something that was changing the world that he grew up in. Right, absolutely. And uh, I think John Wayne does a great job portraying that uh, railroadman. No, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, now, do do I hope one day we get a movie about the, the real Benjamin Grierson? Maybe, you right. know, focus on him as a musician and just, you know, because what a strange, you know, we never know what fate has in store for us. And when he was a musician, just to imagine that he would be thrust into command of one of the greatest commando raids of all time, essentially. Not that people would have called it a commando raid then, but nonetheless, you know. Well, at Gettysburg, we saw how professors fight, and horse uh, horse soldiers, or really Grierson's raid, we saw how a musician fights. Yeah. And that was great. And also, in John Wayne's defense, I think he did a better job as a railroad union officer than uh, McClellan was. So I'll give that yeah, to John yeah. Wayne. <laughs> but... You know, we, we've been praising this movie. Are there any things that you have to say that although you love John Wayne, although you love uh, John Ford as, as much as I do, are there some things that you got to say, listen, it's, it's just unforgivable on the historian side? There, there's nothing unforgivable. Um, there, there's a lot of such stuff that stretches it. There's nothing unforgivable, unforgivable. I mean, Ed Bars said it was unforgivable. But <laughs> Ed Bars was the preeminent purist. Um, on the other hand, who am I to disagree with Ed Bars? So that's that's the counterpoint. But, uh, you know, the... If you were to break it down, I mean, the the idea that they would be sidelined by the whole, you know, the the human drama in it was a little bit just stuff that wouldn't have popped up in wartime. Um, you had the 
you have the lack of cannons. I know that's not a big thing, but it does make an impact on like why they're able to dismiss the militia units so easily. Once again, all you need is Major Dundee to see what even one cannon can do to a small combative force. And then there's the thing of the cadets. And, you know, thinking about Mr. Bars and everything, as, as someone who was a real World War II soldier who, had a, who was wounded at the Battle of the Solomon Islands and everything, I mean, this is someone who really knew war. And I think for him it was just abhorrent to think that a civilized society, you know, he would have considered it a war crime for a civilized society to be throwing middle schoolers in. And while the movie plays that for a gag, because it's something that never happened, I think he's very much adamant. Yeah, I think there was a very much an impulse in him that really wanted to say, no, that didn't happen. And that's, that's not something that should be included. So you've got to dock it a few points on historicity, but it is a great film. Who else? Did, you got to do a couple more interviews. Yeah. Uh, um, so Dad, Dad on his show, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors on AM 970 and AM 570 on weekends. Uh, 970 The Answer, 570 The Mission. Uh, shameless plug there. Um, we've had on several people related to the horse soldiers. On the history end, we've had on, of course, Ed Bars, who we mentioned. We also had Professor Timothy B. Smith, who wrote the book The Real Horse Soldiers. But then from the movie, we had on... If anyone who's familiar with the director, William Wellman, his son, William Wellman Jr., was the bugler on the set of The Horse Soldiers. And so we had him on, and William Wellman Jr., this is an aside, but after working on a John Ford film and then going to one of his father's movie sets, was traumatized by how John Ford treated his actors compared to how, because he said, you know, he thought all movie sets were like that at first. And it's like, no, 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 John Ford was just a rough, mean old, whatever you want to call him. But uh, look, the man made great art. Made tremendously great, great art. Great, but, uh, yeah. but so William Wellman Jr., who was the bugler, has been on our show. And we also had Constance Towers, uh, who Ed Bars would deem the glorified distraction, but ding dong. Yeah. <laughs> ding dong. And, you know, she, she just had nothing but nice things to say. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, sometimes it's great just going back to old Hollywood and being able to hear some of the stories and everything. So, out of curiosity, what did she think about? Did she mention anything about her role and the movie, um, her experience in the movie, like anything specific? She, she didn't. She didn't really have anything negative. She said, you know, the people were gentlemen. You know, j- scared of John Ford. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But you know, the the people were gentlemen to her and everything. So it was. It was. You know, it was. It seemed like a very positive experience for her. Fantastic, fantastic. But I think what our listeners are going to want to hear ultimately after Uh-oh. this great conversation, <laughs> drum roll, right? Yep. What are we going to rate this, and how are we going to rate this? Well, okay. With any – and we talked about this beforehand. Yes. But with, with any historical movie, I think you need to do two ratings and then average them. Okay. So you need, you need the film as a film, as a work of art. And then you need its historical authenticity. And then if you average those out, it's a history buff's palatable answer for what to give the movie. Right. So right. – so as far as a film being a film, uh, you know, John Wayne, no man sits better on a horse than John Wayne. John Ford has painted the picture of not only the West, but our understanding of the cavalrymen. Whether cavalrymen want to be remembered that way, that's how they are now remembered. Yep, that's absolutely true. What do you think? As a movie, as a work of art, it's a 9 out of 10. 9 you know, out of it's, 10. It's a great, okay. great film. Yep. And... Now we go to the historical accuracy uh, or authenticity. We've talked about some of the scenes that were outrageous, but at the same time, we've discussed elements of the film that were true, maybe not to Grierson's raid, Mm -hmm. but were true to the Civil War as a whole. No, there weren't cadets during the raid that fought. We talked about 
that volunteer army. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grierson was not a railroad man, but there were railroad men that did serve. There were politicians that did serve. There were actors that did serve. Talked about the Sherman neckties. What are we going to give? This? this is a real toss-up. What do you think? Well, okay. On pure, look, the fact of the matter is that it, it's a movie that by referencing a lot of things, even if it didn't do it to the T, by referencing a lot of things, I'm sure it inspired a lot of people's interest in history. And the fact that John Ford drew attention to things like the Butternut Gorillas and to, you know, my uncles, I'm sure, are very happy about that. So wherever they are, you know. But uh, I'm sure they're very happy about that. And the you've, you've got Grierson's Raid itself, which is one of the great tactical and operational successes under the umbrella of one of the great strategic success, successes of the Civil War. So that absolutely, it's, it's great that that was brought into the popular conception because, frankly, without the movie The Horse Soldiers, how many people would know about Grierson's Raid now? Probably a few, but it would be very limited to academic circles, whereas in this case you can actually bring up the movie and people, particularly of a certain age, are going to know what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely, um, and who would know about your... your um, the Butternut Gorillas. The Butternut yeah. Gorillas, excuse me, um, because... You know, they're the type of guys who conducted missions that, even though successful, like you said, with the risks, probably yeah. did not want anyone to know that they did do operations like that. So they had to enjoy their success in the quiet yeah. and were, stay out of the limelight, so to speak. So it, did, it took until 1959 for their yeah. story to sort of get told. No, absolutely. And you know what the other thing is? And we talked about Lost Cause stuff a little bit. But when all the Lost Cause history started coming out, it became shameful to say that your family supported the Union in the South. And that was a product of all the bitter strife of Reconstruction. And so you had a lot of people retell their family stories where their Unionist ancestors were actually Confederates. And that just wasn't true. So even bringing up the Butternut Gorillas was a step forward in terms of bringing back the historical authenticity after, first, the strife of Reconstruction, and then the, you know, segregation-era rewriting of history that came with the Lost Cause movement. So, overall, I'm going to say, I'm going to give it, like you said, it's a toss-up, because there is stuff that's kind of glaring in terms of historical authenticity, but I'm going to give it slightly better than a toss-up because of all the positive impact it's had. So I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10 just on historicity. And what does that average out to? That would average out to a history buff safely calling it a 7.5. And I think that safely says that it is a must-see for our listeners. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and doing this with me. It has been a great pleasure. I hope we can do this again, and I can't wait for the next movie review that we do. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, I would never say that our opinion is the end-all, be-all, especially when the late Ed Bars has given his own critique on the movie. So with Connor's permission... I'll play you a snippet of an interview he was a part of with the late Ed Bars regarding John Wayne's Horse Soldiers. One last question. The Horse Soldiers with John Wayne, directed by John Ford. How close is that to Grierson's Raid? Not very close. It uh, it is uh, not one of his great movies. Uh, For instance... Uh, if I hadn't been courting, this is between you, if I hadn't been courting the woman that would become my wife, I would have walked out of the movie. <laughs> uh, they, take a wo- they take a woman, they have to have a heroine along, and they take a woman along in the raid. But worse, now, in the, war, in the Civil War, the Cadet Corps of BMI, of uh, 248 strong, will fight a battle in the 
Civil War at the Battle of Newmarket. The people in the Cadet Corps are primarily from about probably 17 to 19 years old. So what do they have to have a Cadet Corps out fighting against Grierson? They will be using the Cadet Corps from Jefferson Military Academy. This doesn't happen. The Jefferson uh, Military School are boys that are in their early teens. They're not 18 and they're not 16, they're seven, not 17, 18 years old. In fact, they're so young that John Wayne catches one and spanks one. So the think uh, something that really happened in uh, the Virginia Theater War transferred to Mississippi and instead of having the cadets being between 18 and 17, they're the, the cadets are, between, are boys 14 and 15 years old. So with those two things, the woman going and the scene with the uh, Jefferson Military Academy cadets engaging Grierson, if I had been there alone, I'd have walked out. Okay, well, fortunately, you didn't. Thank you. Because if I walked out, I probably, uh, she would probably thought I was a, an overbearing prince and we wouldn't have got married. <laughs> well, fortunately, it worked out. Thank you, Ed, for bringing history to life again, as always, and hopefully we'll be talking to you soon in a couple of months. Very good. Thank you so much. It's always fun talking to you. Thank you, Mr. Bars. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that while you wolfed down handfuls of popcorn, slurped on that large soda, practicing bayonet drill, working on the new ironclads in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, or whenever you listen to podcasts. If you're still looking for a last-minute Christmas gift, please use the link below to get access to the Gentleman's Box. This is a subscription box that will deliver gentlemen's lifestyle, fashion, and fitness goods right to your doorstep. We are talking about smart-looking cufflinks, the perfect colognes, and socks to complete every outfit, as well as watches that make a statement. Using our link will help the show as we do receive some of the proceeds at no extra cost to you. You can also support the show by liking us on Facebook, following us on Instagram, and subscribing to the new YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is going to have a bigger role in Season 2, so don't miss out. Hope to have y'all tune in in the new year. Happy holidays to all, and bye for now.